Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of JM Rewind. Today, a little bit different than usual, we're going to rewind, replay um, the um, Bar Ilan University special event presented by us here at the Nahum Siegel Network and the American Friends of Bar Ilan University, uh, where Malcolm Honline uh, was interviewed before his uh, the day before the uh, honorary doctorate that was given to him by Bar Ilan. Uh, essentially about the state of Israeli and uh, American jury and their relationship one with the other. Uh, the interview was conducted by Adam Furziger. It was uh, done to launch a new impact center for the study of Judaism in Israel and North America. And uh, here is that conversation, plus the interviews we did with representatives of Bari Lan at the tail end of that broadcast, that special broadcast right here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Adam Furziger will present, um, will will precede the presentation by Malcolm Holmline, and then the Q&A with the uh, audience at the ceremony that's going to be taking place. You're listening to the Nahum Siegel Network and the American Friends of Barilan University, live from Israel. This live broadcast featuring uh, star professors and researchers and launching the new Impact Center for the Study of Judaism in Israel and North Mr. America. Michael Justin, Chairman of the Board of Trustees, Professor Ari Saban. President of the University, Professor Shula Michaeli, Vice President of Research, Professor Eli Assis, Dean of the Faculty of Jewish Studies, Rabbi Ari Berman, special guest and old friend from Yeshiva University. Leaders of, the, of Bar Ilan University and distinguished fellow faculty members and administration. Mr. Eli Groner, Director General of the Prime Minister's Office. <laughs> Mr. Malcolm Honline, Honorary Doctoral Candidate. <laughs> Trustee members and honored guests, including my mom. My mom. And a shout out from afar as well to those listening on the Nahum Siegel Network. Thank you. <laughs> and finally, uh, I want to acknowledge old friend Gabby Weisfeld from Toronto, who's sitting here. And uh, this beautiful auditorium it was dedicated for her late husband, Louis, and in honor of Gabby. And it's really a pleasure to be speaking in this room. And thank you to all those who were involved in planning and executing this event. Your efforts are appreciated deeply, and all of my fellow colleagues, I really appreciate you coming out here this evening, and all our friends as well. Just two weeks ago, one of America's most famous Jewish personalities, Natalie Portman, shocked local fans when she backed out on her commitment to accept a prestigious prize in Israel due to political considerations. With all the unfortunate fallout from the Portman boycott, I was struck more deeply by comments published the same week by prominent New York Times columnist and staunch Israel supporter, Brett Stevens. In an article intended to celebrate Israel's 70th Independence Day and defended against its strongest critics, Stevens emphasized the fact that religious conflicts are alienating even some of Israel's most loyal North American supporters. 
conflicts surrounding religion have intensified to such a degree that they threaten the core relationship, the very precious and important core relationship of the two most important centers of Jewish life in the world. Many bemoan the deteriorating division and will repeat mantras like, we are all one nation and we need to increase achtut, Jewish unity. Yet to date, little concerted effort has been made to analyze the foundations of this struggle and to propose creative and positive ways to reconceive the relationship. While these critical, with these critical issues in mind, we launched today the new Impact Center for research on Judaism in Israel and North America. Our aim is to draw from the profound expertise and vast intellectual resources of this university in order to examine the relationship between the novel Jewish religious civilization that has developed since the mid 20th century in the state of Israel on one side and the rich and diverse North American Jewish religious culture that has emerged in parallel. Our communities share much in common, but our guiding assumption in this center is that there are also fundamental differences between these two frameworks that are at the foundation of many of the more specific areas of debate. The longer, I'm referring here to some of the words of Elie uh, Groner, the longer that the Jewish religion is attached to a sovereign Jewish state, the more it will advance a religious mode that is distinct from the wide spectrum of voluntary religious ideological streams and collectives that characterize North American Judaism. Thus, before focusing on strengthening the shared parts, the key challenge is to acknowledge the competing versions of modern Judaism that are growing in parallel. Once we do this, we can spawn new tools and methods that will fortify our areas of common interests and values and help us navigate the most explosive issues of contention. The Center for Research on Judaism in Israel and North America will feature three components. Each is organic to this university. First, our applied research laboratory and go-to team will build upon our extraordinary collection of scholars who are world leaders in the critical scientific study of Judaism and Jewish life. Second, we are initiating a path-breaking MA program focused on contemporary Judaism in Israel and North America. Here, our teaching and mentoring expertise will cultivate visiting students from North America and the next generation of Israeli public leaders. That's one of my students who just walked in. Third, the center will launch our track to back channel framework for negotiating the most challenging issues of religious conflict. We are firm in our conviction that Barilan's legacy as Israel's tradition rooted university well positions it to embark on finding ways to directly and concretely impact the welfare of the Jewish people now and in the future. 
Regarding this novel track two format, I want to emphasize that the combination of Bar Ilan's rigorous academic reputation with its strong ties to the widest spectrum of Jewish religious streams, both in Israel and in North America, is unparalleled in any other university or institute anywhere in the world. And I'm a graduate of university, and I love that institution and appreciate many things about it. But Bar Ilan has a particular place, and that is not a competitive comment, but it's rather an acknowledgment. These attributes distinguish Bar-Ilan by highlighting its exceptional convening power. Here, factions and individuals that are public adversaries will engage in the hard work of negotiating workable solutions. Outside the glare of publicity and political jockeying, this environment will instill confidence in the participants as they will recognize that the negotiations are being facilitated by an institution that is not driven by underlying biased agendas. The complex relationship between the land of Israel, between land of Israel-based Judaism and that of Jews in other venues is not a completely new phenomenon. Both versions of the Talmud, the Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem, and the Bavli Babylonian record multiple legal dispensations attributed to consideration for the needs of temple pilgrims coming from or returning abroad. These legislative strands undermine the popular notion that as long as the ancient Jews were sovereigns in the land of Israel, the Holy Land was the exclusive center of Jewish religious and cultural life, and that only afterwards Babylon set out on the path that brought forth its great academies and the Babylonian Talmud. The truth is that for hundreds of years prior to the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 CE and hundreds after, Jerusalem and other locations in the land of Israel on one side and Babel on the other existed in parallel as distinct centers. Their relationship was certainly mutually beneficial, but it was also marked by notable tensions and disagreements on issues of religious ideals and values. Nobody denied the competition between Jerusalem and Babel, nor the fundamental variances between their religious and political constitutions. Rather, they recognized that it was in the interest of each side, and ultimately the Jewish people as a whole, that these two preeminent communities create viable tools for coexistence and cooperation. Today, we are once again privileged to live in a world in which the land of Israel has returned to its foremost place as a wellspring of Jewish spiritual and physical sustenance. At the same time, North America, the Bavel of our times, has emerged as a vibrant, populous Jewish civilization whose intellectual and cultural, po cultural power and creativity contribute profoundly to contemporary Judaism. The new Center for Research on Judaism in Israel and North America is set to engage this globalized Jewish world with wisdom, analytical sophistication, and determination to have an impact. Malcolm, you ready? Over the past century, a few individuals have stood out. Stood out, stand up, good. As international leaders who succeeded in impacting global Jewish life in profound ways, Malcolm Holmline is among the most outstanding. Already as a student at Temple and University of Pennsylvania, he set out on a career of service to the Jewish people through the establishment of the North American Jewish Student Network. Subsequently, he was founding director of the Jewish Community Relations Council of New York 
And as the executive director of the Greater New York Council for Soviet Jewry, he played a commanding role in one of the most transformative Jewish movements of the 20th century. For the past 32 years, he has led, he has led the, the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, a coalition that today contains 52 independent organizations that encompass a vast gamut of religious, ideological, and political outlooks. He has worked with every US president from Carter to Trump and every Israeli prime minister from Begin to Netanyahu. He has been welcomed repeatedly, not only in the White House and the Knesset, but in the Kremlin and in the palaces of Saudi Arabia, Dubai, and Morocco as well. Malcolm Holmline's unique ability to bring diverse groups to the table has not come at the cost of compromising his own personal religious and Zionist identity, nor has his influence been predicated on grabbing the limelight. On the contrary, he is the preeminent Jewish diplomat who has succeeded in bringing together Jews of every stripe, as well as convincing countries and statesmen known publicly as irreconcilable enemies of the Jewish people in the state of Israel to change their policies in profound ways. His life of dedication, his public acuity, and his skillful utilization of back-channel formats, all in the service of, the Jew of Jewish life, are an inspiration to us as we set out on our new initiative. Tomorrow night, Bar Ilan will confer Malcolm Honline with an honorary doctorate in recognition, in recognition of all he has done and it is with great pleasure that I now invite him to join me for a focused discussion. Adam Furziger's introduction of uh, Malcolm Holmline. Now that we'll get into a uh, discussion, interview, Q&A in front of the crowd gathered for this historic it's event at Barlow. be able to walk away. Great. So uh, this is going to be a little less formal. We, we want to hear Malcolm's voice, so we're going to get started quickly. Uh, let's start with the Soviet Jewry movement, a topic that brought you to the center of national Jewish leadership. It's also a subject which is particularly relevant here in a university setting, since so many of its most effective activists were themselves students. So start just by telling us how you got involved, please. Okay. Uh, first of all, I want to say what a, an honor it is to have this opportunity to be here for the launch, and I hope to be able to help and participate in the future as you develop the Impact Center, and to thank the President, Dean, and others who are here, faculty members, especially uh, our good friend Ellie Groner and, uh, and Rabbi Berman, Dr. Berman, and other honorees who are getting doctorates, and the young people who've come, and Nagels, and, uh, and future students, and future students here, um, and everyone else. I don't want to start naming because I have so many friends, including some from the Soviet Jury days. I saw Jane and others who were involved with us from the, the days of the Soviet Jury movement. And, and what was unique about it is that we created a movement, not an organization and it encompassed people's lives. Soviet Jewry became a cause, and I know people who lost their jobs because of it, because they devoted so much time to it that the bosses fired them. And they were willing to take, pay that price. 
people who work day and night, not those of us whose names were in the press. And the first year when I came in 71 to start the conference on Soviet Jury against a lot of opposition at the time, but with the support of a few and a very limited budget, the staff of three of us, and we decided to do the first Solidarity Day because we knew that New York set the standard, that as long as New York did not have a centralized operation and it didn't have a central Jewish community relations council or, or council like every other major city, and because of its size and the opposition of national agencies who didn't want competition, for a variety of other reasons which we can go into, there was this desire to avoid creating a sense of community in New York. And I remember one of the leaders, top leaders of the American Jewish community at a meeting at the UJ Federation where I spoke about building community and stuff, and he got up and he said, what community? There is no community in New York. And uh, thank God in the end he ended up on the board of the organization. But, but let, me, yeah. let me just say what, what brought me to it was honestly never again that I know how strongly I was influenced by the Shoah. And from the time I was 10 or 11 years old, I got involved politically because I believed that only when Jews could have control of their own fate and future and understood the political process and got involved, as Avi even said, in World War II, Jews had influence in many places, but power in none. I knew that Jewish power was the key to our survival. And I remember my parents getting the telegram that my grandparents had been killed and, uh, and as a young child, a very young child, uh, after the war when those yellow telegrams came and those of our neighbors and others who received them. And I know it made a lasting impact. So much of what I've done is to avoid another situation where Jews will live at the sufferance of others. The Jews will not determine their own fate. And Soviet Jewry gave us all and I started when I was 14. I came to New York at 15 to meet with Jakob Birnbaum, who was then the legendary leader, who really a, a true hero of our people, who started the student struggle. And he, he wrote later about, you know, the skinny kid from Philadelphia who came. No longer true. But, uh, but it was really uh, an understanding that if we mean never again, and I believe it's a pledge every generation has to take anew, then you have to translate that into deed. It's not enough to talk about it. You have to act on it. So and Soviet Jewry became the, the vehicle for people to do it. So why was it when you started out that the so-called establishment was so uh, reticent about this stuff? Why did you have to fight so hard to convince both the uh, leaders of organizations and famous rabbis to support what you were doing? Well, each one was a different reason. There was one very famous rabbi, one of the Gedolei Hador, who could not believe that Hitler was worse than Stalin because he lived under Stalin. And he used to call me in to come and see him, or I would go and see him, and he would talk to me about what we were doing. And at one point he said to me, you know what, I see what, what you're doing. Because he believed that we endangered everybody by doing these public manifestations. And he said, I have only one request. Don't use Tashmishe Kedusha. Don't wear Talitot and carry Sifrei Torah in the demonstrations, because every time the Russians see them in Russia, they will associate it with the demonstrations against them. So I immediately adopted it, and with the exception of one rabbi, we stopped wearing the Talitot and people using it. It did not detract from the demonstration, but it enhanced the security of the Jews there. Others in the establishment associated it with Kahana and with you know, violence and, and disruptive things. What made the difference was when the Jews in Russia put their lives on the line and, kid and, and uh, hijacked the airplane. 
That was the message. And everything that we did, contrary to others, was with the permission of Russian Jews. And I explained this to Lubavitcher Rebbe and others who talked to us about this. And when Brownover got out and we paid a $42,000 fine for him, education fine, the highest ever, and his brother and I went to see the Rebbe about it. And the Rebbe had every right to be critical and have his own way because he did. The others didn't do, they just were critics. But he did. He did so much and continued to do so much in Russia that I respected anything and everything. And he came to respect to, to be what we were doing. And, uh, and I think that in terms of the establishment, it was a big leap for them. The idea that we took to the street when we did the first Solidarity Day, I can tell you honestly, almost no organization helped us. What we did is we leapfrogged them and took ads in the paper that said, eight great reasons not to march for Soviet Jews. And it was so chutzpah and it was so out of the box. And 50,000 people showed up. The next day, everybody else took credit for it. And, and somebody you know who worked for me at the time, I came in the morning and she was crying. And I said, what's the matter? And she said, look, all the work we did, none of them really helped us. And now they're all taking credit. I said, you know what the answer is? that ultimately everybody knows who does and who doesn't do. Just by taking well, credit, they don't the, get a that reputation. That actually is not completely accurate because we talked about the fact, and we've done both done some our different types of uh, looking into it. One group that didn't take credit, but actually probably deserved a lot of credit, was the government of Israel. And I'm wondering, how did that exactly transpire that there was this, I don't know if you'd call it a back channel, or what, what exactly went on there in those days that uh, didn't get into the newspaper. You're absolutely right, and this is another case where Israel doesn't get the credit it, does, it deserves. There would have been no Soviet Jewry movement in the United States were it not for the government of Israel. When we wanted to do the first Solidarity Day, we didn't have the money, and through the efforts of the Soviet Jewry Council, raised $75,000 for us, for us to be able to carry on and to do the activity until the rest of the establishment caught up and eventually you know, when I left, we had a big staff, a large budget. We were, had activities of every kind going on. But it was the Nativ office. It was great heroes of the Jewish people who had gone into the Soviet Union. And many people here, I know, were approached and had shlichut, where we all went. My wife, who's here, and, uh, um, and she deserves applause because she's, she's the one who has to put up with all of it. Um, when we went, we got arrested in Russia in 1971. <laughs> I'm going to hold off on that for one second because we're going to get But that many others did too, and many others, young people, put their lives in line, but didn't, without a second thought. And I'm talking about American Jews, not talking about Israelis. Young American Jews, young European wow. Jews, because they understood. And, and what we're missing today is that we don't have our success is our failure. The fact that we saved Russian Jews, Ethiopian Jews, Syrian Jews, Yemeni Jews, Iraqi Jews, Iranian Jews, we're running out of Jews to save, and that was unifying things that, that brought people together in the purest causes. That were, you know, not bound by politics. Soviet Jewry was the purest cause, and that's why we had blacks for Soviet Jewry, lawyers for Soviet Jewry, Hispanics for Soviet Jewry. One time, an 85-year-old man came to my office the day after Solidarity Day, and he brought me a $5 bill. And he said it was the first time in his life, born in America, that he ever did anything publicly Jewish. And he said, you changed my life, even at 85. And Rift Alexandrovich was in our house and said that all of our suffering is worth it if we save one of your children. I believe saved, Soviet Jews saved more of our children than we saved of theirs. Well, I think you know, that, that point about the sort of religious 
nature, not in the necessarily orthodox, but the religious spiritual nature of that movement is, is a very important and one. And nobody cared who was orthodox or right. conservative. Right. We understood that if you want unity, Achtos is the one precondition to every great miracle that happened to the Jewish people. And Achtos is not attained by putting labels on people, by finding the common aspirations, the common hopes, the common drive that people have, and building on that. And it's not what differentiates us, it's what unites us. And that's when we succeed. So what was it like? Now, that was all fine and dandy till you became the uh, head of the Conference of Presidents, and then you had to go meet these people from the Kremlin. You know, <laughs> you were doing great things. You were working for the Jewish people. You were bringing Achtu together. And then you find yourself in the post-Glasnost uh, era sitting in the Kremlin. What does a guy who, like you just said, got arrested as an activist uh, feel like when you're back in the Kremlin, you know, 15 years later, 20 years later? Well, I will admit that the first time it was really surreal because for 25 years they wrote articles about this young couple that came, the Zionist provocateurs and the CIA agents, and named us. And for 25 years, you know, Secretary Schultz put me on the list for one of his delegations. They sent back to the list and they said, you want him, you stay home. And Al D'Amato did the same thing, put me on a Codell. They absolutely canceled the Codell visit until he took my name off the list. So for 25 years, they, they kept writing about it. It felt good because they kept saying we were a young couple. Uh, but, but then when, I mean, Glasnost happened, one of the first times, uh, we had to go three times in one year in 1998 because they kept changing prime ministers. So we would go, and finally we met with Chairman Mirden, and uh, I got into a really heated exchange with him over an executive order. We went there because of Russia's transfer of dual-use technology to Iran. And it's hard to think that people today, but we, this was 20 years ago, we were already pressing this agenda, and I started in the early 90s with it. And uh, finally, uh, Chairman said, you want the executive order, I'll get it to you. And Al, Al Gore's uh, chief of staff was there that day trying to get it, and he had called me right before the meeting saying they turned him down. So Chairman Mirren said, okay, I'll, I'll take care of it, I'll get it to you. And everybody laughed, because you know, we didn't think it was serious. He said, but I want you to go and see Kokoshin, who's in charge of this in Russia, the transfer of technology. So we go in the special lane, not 10 minutes, and we get there, and he's standing outside with a guy in uniform. I'll give you the short version. We go in, we sit down. He said, okay, here are your questions, and here are your answers. And he proceeded to tell us what we were going to ask and what his answers were, and read it straight from the thing. So they didn't bug anything. So all those stories about Russia being invasive, don't believe any of it. And then... Um, and he had this guy in uniform next to him, and I responded to to, to Kokoshin, and I talked about what the dangers would be to Russia every day. You got a big rest of the Muslim population. You can think of Iran, we'll transfer technology. And this guy in uniform went off like a rocket. He said, you are right, this is the greatest danger. Only we in Israel face this every day in our borders, et cetera, et cetera. So I said, excuse me, you weren't introduced to us. He said, my name is Vladimir Putin, head of the KGB. <laughs> Well, all of us were like gasping for air, going, whoa. And we ended up having an hour and a half, the most amazing discussion with him. He really got it. And I came to respect him, and I had many opportunities afterwards to meet with him. And uh, he's very shrewd, very smart. Don't underestimate him. I mean, this is a guy with an economy the size of Italy <clears throat> dictating what happens in the world today. So after the meeting, they served canopies. So I just sat in my chair, 
I didn't want her to show me what they need. And all of a sudden, I see a glass come and snap down like that in front of me. And I see the vodka being poured. And I look up, and it was Putin. And he said, you're going to have a drink with me. I said, well, it's okay. Uh, and I said, but I have to tell you that it's very strange for me. He said, why? I said, well, the last time I met you guys, you arrested me. <laughs> he said, when was that? I said, 1971. He said, where? He said, Moldova. He said, that's why we got rid of it. <laughs> and when I saw him a year later at a White House reception, you know, he scans the room. He saw me and went, Moldova? <laughs> and we met with him right afterwards downstairs. He said, I want you to know, for you, I'm keeping the generals waiting. And we couldn't figure out what he was talking about. And we came out, the head of General Motors and General Electric were sitting there waiting. <laughs> <laughs> so what's more difficult, uh, dealing with people like Putin or uh, the, or the, the Saudi Arabians or, or, or running a, a, a conference of 52 organizations with religious, ideological diversity, you know, you know, the, the old Truman discussion of uh, running a, uh, excuse me, Wilson, running a university versus running in a government. So which one is uh, more challenging? Well, let me just say that I have a very high tolerance level because I really believe that I am blessed that God gave me the opportunity to do full-time what most people have to do part-time. That what most people can only do after they do their regular jobs, I have the privilege of doing all the time. And I believe I have to work to keep that privilege, and that's why I do 18-hour days. So my end of the contract and his end of the contract will be kept up. I never looked for a job in my life. Every job happened to me. So there was a course that was set, I think, for me to do, and, and it is a real bracha to be able to do that. So you put up with a lot of stuff. I'm not going to say it's easy being in the Conference of Presidents. You know, you, you, the, I tell people the way I keep them united is I give them a common enemy, me. <laughs> and so they can all be angry at me, then they stick together. The fact is that on 90% of the issues, we can find a common ground. And if you understand that most people, even if they come from extreme left, extreme right, whatever stream, whatever, but most of them are motivated by a commitment to the Jewish people. There are some whose egos sometimes dictate and override any of those commitments. But if you understand that common thing, and if you understand and I, all my life I worked in umbrella organizations because I really believe in Claudius Israel. I really believe that our strength lies in, in building together, that the whole is far greater than the sum of the parts. And too much of the time we spend about differentiating what divides us. And the center should not talk about divide, what divides us. Focus first on what unites us, build on that. Then you can talk about what divides us. And, and I will just give you one example. Alexander Schindler was head of the reform movement when he was chairman of the conference. He instituted a rule that we buy by till today that we don't deal with any halachic issues because he said you can't operate on consensus on, the base, on, on religious issues. And that saved, in large part, the conference from being involved in these things that, that drive us apart. It doesn't mean we don't communicate, that I won't call Ellie or others, to say, look, I want you to know there's a real concern in the community about this issue or that issue, <clears throat> and try to give them an objective assessment, and if we can, a suggestion, as a conference, because you can't work on consensus when it comes to religious issues. I, I want to take a, you know, but I went away a from what you said. That, if you'll allow me, it's getting harder from what we're seeing, both from an internal Jewish perspective, but actually from what I see and read and, and people that, that speak to me. Um, the Trump White House is a complicated place. It's complicated for many reasons that are obvious well, to I'll all of us. I'll give you a hint. Um, <laughs> but uh, let's start with the fact that. Uh, there are some very visible Orthodox Jews who have a very 
strong um, footprint in that White House. And I'm wondering, you as somebody who is outwardly identified as Orthodox, uh, you know, how do you navigate uh, the current uh, political uh, landscape? First of all, there are many more than you know. Many more. And there are people in one ministry, that I did, one department of the government that I went to, there are four Orthodox Jews sitting in top-level positions. Not everybody knows. You know some of them because it came from uh, some, uh, where you come from, but originally. But they um, they don't even know each other all necessarily. <laughs> I introduced them to tell them that they are, you know you can make a minion here and nobody knew. Um, but Orthodox Jews have been in all governments, and uh, uh, just now it's a much larger number and much more visible uh, uh, number of people. And people you see walk around the White House or other places with the Yarmulke which was not necessarily the case uh, years ago. And as Yekis, we don't necessarily, that's not what we advocate, but what, what we believe, I do wear yarmulke everywhere. When I go into Arab offices and heads of state, and people say to me, why do you wear yarmulke? Aren't you worried? Aren't you worried? You know what? I tell them they're more worried about something happening to me than I am. But the thing they say to me is, and I ask them, why, why me? You know, I wear yarmulke. You know my political views. You know what I do. And they say, it's exactly why, because you know who you are. And we want to do, deal with people who know who they are because you'll be consistent in your responses and your actions. He said, the rest of them, they don't know who they are. And that's uh, something that we have to, to build on. And it's not just whether you're, what f fraction you're from, but if you're consistent, it's the legitimacy of the arguments, it's the accuracy of the case you make, it's the facts you present. Every Arab leader that I have met, I met Assad for three hours a month before the fighting, and the first hour, he just questioned. We were sitting alone, not a guard, not a glass of water, nothing. And he just started, he was probing me, and I knew it. And when he saw that I knew what I was saying, he kept saying to me, how did you know that? How did you know that? The second hour, he started telling me the most intimate secrets of his life and about his family, about his father, about other things. And they see that if you are a reliable source, if you are somebody that they can talk to in confidence, one of the things they say is, we know you never leak. And I have never in the, all the years leaked any of the stories, that's why. And people say to me, why don't you publish, why don't you publish? Because it's more important for me for the long term to be able to continue to maintain the confidence of the people we deal with. That presidents in the United States have told me the most incredible things that I could have made a lot of headlines with. But what is the value? So one morning you get a headline, the next day you have no access. So it's very important, I mean, to the lessons that we've learned over the years about how do you deal with power, you respect power, you don't worship power. Power is not an end in itself, but if I, I can just say, to me, Jewish power is sacred. That's the lesson from the Shoah. To me, Jewish power is like a muscle. If you exercise it right, you build it up. If you abuse it, you destroy it. And that's true of a state, and it's true of independent communities. We are not equal, obviously. We don't have an air force, we don't have an army, we don't. But the partnership of the two, recognizing each other's unique abilities, when the National Security Council of Israel did a study and said that the that diaspora Jewry represented a unique asset, a unique strategic asset in, uh, see he's getting scared, I'm going to come talk about him. <laughs> a unique strategic asset. I, I don't scare you, see, that's... Uh... <laughs> Maybe we change that. Um, thanks. A unique strategic asset. And you don't know how many foreign leaders said, if we only we had a diaspora like Israel does. Because it is a powerful tool, and if they learn to respect it, if we learn to deal with it together and use that power to build up that muscle, then 
we all benefit from it. So I'm going to ask you one more question, but in the meantime, I'm going to ask the audience if we have time for a few uh, comment, uh, not comments, but really questions. But before we get to that, I, could you say where where do you think is the is the biggest problem right now? Is it about ignorance between Israel and America? Is it about uh, lack of interface in a in a in a way that can be productive? What is going on that even Brett Stevens is worried about American Jews feeling alienated and Israeli Jews? Uh, don't really get it as far as America is concerned. Where, where do you Yes. <laughs> and look, I think that all of those are challenges of today. And it's not on one side or the other, it's a collective challenge that we have. Ignorance is rampant. And that means even those who are unfortunately yeshiva educated don't know how to answer when they get to campus. Even those who have gone to some of the best schools, we've tested it. We, we have an, a huge problem of assimilation. You know, when the Bnei Yisrael came out of oh, Mitzrayim, they said chamushim alu, that, that uh, they, they came out armed. But the other Mepharshim say, no, 20% came out, that 80% had assimilated. Today, we're seeing that every day. Every day, we're losing hundreds and hundreds of Jews, young Jews in particular, every single day. That's the biggest danger. And you can't communicate with them in the same way as we did before. You have to learn how to use social media. They communicate in 140 letters. You can't talk about history in 140 letters. You can't give these difficult and complex issues. You mentioned globalization in your remarks. We were the first globalized people. Benjamin Mitudela, how did you have a diamond industry? How did you have all these things? It was because Jews had connections around the world. And yet we're falling behind on the whole issue. Second. It's an age of indifference. People don't want to be bothered with history. They don't have patience for history. They want food now, peace now, everything now, without any contemplation about what's it. You can't communicate in 140 characters these complex issues. So we have to look at, at the, the challenge that we have today is a generation that says, and this drives me crazy, it is what it is. I hear that all the time from young people. And I tell them, no, it isn't. It is what you make of it. It is what it is. It means that you have no power. You can't influence the outcome that you've given up. And we have to change that. We have to get empower young Jews to know. And that Soviet jury did that. It empowered young Jews. The movement for Syrian Jews empowered young Jews. They drove the movements. Today, we put them down. We, we, they're marginalized in a large respects in our community. And we have to find uh, ways to, to capitalize, no matter what their political views are. I believe in the smorgasbord approach. We should have something for everybody that draws them to the community. And once they're there, they will find broader expression. They're, they're not looking for the edifice complex. They're not looking for fancy boom. They're looking for content. They want to know what it means. And you know, we can condemn all of those who stray away. We've got to think about why are they straying? What is it that we have failed to provide? What, what have we not done? in their education, and you can't just send kids on birthright, and I'm a big supporter of birthright, at the age of 18 and ignore them the first 17 years of their lives and think they're going to be okay. It's not Israel's responsibility to make up for our failures. Israel's the inspiration. Israel is what unites us. I still believe Israel is a positive value, and for, for most, the problem is that we, we should try to shun, uh, sh uh, shuttle off some of our failures onto Israel to say, oh, they're responsible for the alienation of our youth. No, they're not. We're responsible. And if there are differences with Israel, we have to deal with them. I do believe there's a lack of sensitivity here. I don't think that people take enough into concern what diaspora, how they view it, what are the issues that, that we could work on together and find solutions 
to work on it, but too many people on all sides have political agendas of other agendas which they overlay and overlay and overlay. You can't even see the problem anymore because it's all obfuscated. So we have to, and I hope this center will help, look at things in a new way to bring back our youth, to, to challenge them, to give them ways that they can find expression within the community and in the larger community, find causes for them where they can. And if it's, it's domestic causes, it can be international causes. I do believe that I saw it with the Iran 13, how many young people were so hungry for an opportunity to express their concern for the Jewish people by coming out and demonstrating and working and, and even foreign governments, you know, we got 66 governments to come intervene. I, I ran the campaign around the world because obviously Israel couldn't. And those 10 Jews, three of them were marked for death and 10 for long prison sentences of 13. All of them are home with their families now. Everyone, first time since the revolution when they didn't execute Jews. It was the first time we found out about it in advance. But because people heard it and took to the cause, and we got non-Jews to be out front and others, so it wasn't a question of the, being just a Jewish event, but, but that we made it a real universal event, that even the Iranians, and I met with Zarif, I had dinner in his home, and, uh, uh, and he's a real chameleon, and, and uh, it's a subject for another time, but the, we negotiated with it, and finally came to the point where I said, if you do it, I promise you we won't rub your face in it. And one person afterwards criticized me a lot, but he didn't know what was the real background and what was really happening. But because we made that promise, they let those people go. And that's the greatest reward. Who can look at a better reward than all of you who helped save Jews, who helped Russian Jews and Ethiopian Jews and Syrian Jews, all of them, who had been written off to Jewish history? We've seen the miracle of Kibbutz Goliath in our lifetime. How many people really appreciate it? How many of us think that we saw the prophetic vision taking place? Or do we only complain? Only 65,000 years, only 35,000? Think about what has changed over this, this small time. And this little country made it all possible. We can take credit. But if it weren't for the state of Israel, I, you know, I arranged the Boschewitz to go to the mission when we had that window of opportunity in Ethiopia for 48 hours. And together with the chairman of the conference, I think it was Shoshana Cardin then, we went to see General Scowcroft at the White House. He was the, the chief of staff of NSC, I think, of the, uh, under Bush. And he turned me down. And, I, and then as he turned me down, he got a call from the White House, from the president, saying to come. And he started to walk out. And I told everybody, just sit. And I said to him, as he walked out, just tell me, ask the president one thing for me. Will he, can he afford to see the pictures of dead Ethiopian Jews like we see the pictures of dead Iraqi Kurds on the front page of the New York Times that morning because you said no? And he came back 10 minutes later, and he said yes. Oh. And I called Rudy Boschewitz, who was skiing in Vail. I didn't tell him anything. I just said, will you be in, e in Ethiopia this weekend? He said yes. I said, that's Nasa Benishma. He didn't ask me any questions. That weekend he was there, negotiated the release, and that made the operation possible. Oh, yeah. That's what happens when Jews, but it was because we had a state of Israel. <laughs> it's because we had a state of Israel that could carry it out. So now, uh, that's... It's very gratifying for us here in Israel, but us Israelis are not shy, so I think a few of them want to ask you a few questions. Do we have time for, yeah, for a question or two? Yeah. Um, part of the price of the doctorate is... Any questions? <laughs> no problem. So it's free, it's free game. Great. So if anybody has any questions for Malcolm, now's your chance. Yes. Shimon uh, 
Shimon Ochayon, the director of the Dance Center in Barilan University. What do you think about the future of Jewish education in the United States? It's another evening that we have to spend together. I'm not worried about the Jewish future alone. I'm worried about the Jewish present in Jewish education. Um, less and less kids are getting a Jewish education. You know, the afternoon school, which uh, I taught, it's how I paid for my tuition through college, was at least an alternative, a viable place where they got some identification, some knowledge base, and they would come. It is disappearing rapidly. So we don't have anything other than the day schools, which are wonderful and extremely important, but for the bulk of Jewish kids are not getting any Jewish education. That's why I said that we have to think in a much more creative way. You know that many years ago I tried to start a newsletter for high school students called the Jewish Highlight. We published a daily alert every day together with the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs. And thank you. I appreciate that, so the rest will subscribe now. It's free. It's free, you can get to. And, uh, and I tried to do a weekly high school thing, and I brought college uh, Jewish kids from the public schools, yeshivot, and element and uh, private schools. Those sessions were the most exciting and dynamic thing, and they created a newsletter that appealed to students because they knew what would appeal to them. I, two years, I could not find one foundation that would fund it. Nobody cared. When we published it, the biggest problem we had was schools weren't using it because the teachers couldn't teach it. So we had to do a week before, provide them with all the answers and worksheets so they could teach what was in the, in the, daily, in the weekly, the, the high school alert, it was called a uh, highway. And that's the problem. We, you know, we have had attempts at curriculum, we've had attempts at other things, some really valiant ones. But there has to be a whole new approach, and part of it is that we have to go to where they are, which is at the end of the computer screen or their iPhone. We have to find creative ways. Find me something that teaches a six-year-old or a seven-year-old about what's going on. Because they see the television reports, they see the news reports. Whoever tells them that that picture of an Israeli killing a, a kid or an adult, they absorb those images. I brought together 10 psychiatrists and psychologists, and I asked them, what do we do about it? And their bottom line was, come back in 10 years and we'll show you the results. So, I, I just want to say, this is really important to me. The Catholic Church says, give me a kid till he's six, you can have him the rest of their lives. We have to start, not just with high school students or college students, we have to start with them in elementary school and younger, provide them with positive images about Israel, talk to them about Israel. You'd be shocked how much of the views that they shape, that they ultimately express, are shaped in those early years. And we don't do it, we've ignored them. We have to look at every segment. You know, I've tried for years, since Prime Minister Sharon, to get Israel to undertake a World Jewish Singles events here. To, there are a million Jewish singles in America, a million Jewish singles here, tens of thousands in Europe who will never meet a Jewish maid. Bring them here. Build Jewish families. So his answer to me was, oh, you'll have Yerida. I said, you'll have Aliyah. <laughs> How do you know? Make Israel attractive and we'll keep them here. But they'll find jobs, they'll find mates. Them. But if not, at least you'll have Jewish families. Look at the, what potential we have of bringing them and having tens of thousands, and they'll pay their own way here to come. And in every university, in every place, have programs for them, have things that they can attend and meet each other. 
There's so many creative ideas that are possible. And it doesn't, it's not just about money. It's about the will and the interest and the intent to do it. And I believe we can make a real difference, change things, make Judaism more attractive, make what, and not just about Saras. I believe strongly in the March of the Living. I participate almost every year. But that can't be the essence. It's that when they come to Israel and they celebrate Israel, we have, that's why this week's Pasha, we're talking about, about the mitzvah of Simcha on Yom Tov, that you have to, and they say it's the hardest mitzvah to, to fulfill, is it's really infusing our celebrations with joy and celebration. That's what we have to do with Jewish education and Jewish life. It's not to tell them only the divisions and the fights and the tsars, but tell them the victories, the celebration, the joy. Who tells them about this, the discoveries in Ir David? Things that every single one of them, and at Minarota Kotel and all over, every one of them validates the Tanakh. Every single one of them. You have problems with the moon, you have problems with kids believing, show them a rock with a menorah carved into it. Show them the other things that have been discovered. But who talks to people about it? I ask them all the time, I ask them at a good convention, how many of you talk to your kids Friday night about this? You want to inspire them? Look at the great things that you have to inspire them, and we don't use them. Gabby, Gabby. I'm, I'm in the field, or have been. We have priced ourselves out of the market, and this is a terrible, terrible thing. I know it because I'm Canadian, so in Canada it's become a big scandal. In the States I don't know anymore. But that is our problem. People will not pay the money. I agree. And you have a president of a university who has to struggle with this every day. You have two presidents of a university who have to struggle with it. But I believe, honestly, there's enough money in the Jewish community. The problem is it's in their pockets. So we have to get it, them to take it out of their pockets, and instead of wasting and giving hundreds of millions of dollars to universities, it's very nice, but you've got to set priorities. We have not made giving this money a, no, no, I meant secular universities. I didn't mean Jewish universities. It's nice. I want to see Jewish names on hospitals, on everything else, you know, because Jews could get on these boards that they were, they were excluded from. But, but I'm talking about giving to Jewish universities, Jewish schools, Jewish education, that if we have to make it a priority and make it more of a status issue that people understand that they can get as much covered in a day, and, and we have to start setting standards for people who are honored in our community, who are described as philanthropists and other things, and they don't give anything to Jewish causes. It's wonderful to give to Jen. I, want, I believe people should give to everything. And, you know, we saw that, that right after this uh, thing about Shavuos, we see charity comes up. In, in the parsha, We believe that we have our responsibility for everybody. We have a universal responsibilities to take care of people. But first, come first. And when you have hundreds of thousands of Jews living behind, below the poverty level here in Israel, when we have unit schools that cannot survive because the parents can't pay tuition, no Jewish school should, Jewish students should be denied a Jewish education because their parents can't afford it. And we as a collective responsibility have to take it on. Uh, hello, my name is Yitzhak Hildesheimer. Really? I would, I would like to ask uh, Malcolm Holline, would you agree to a statement that says that there is Jewish anti-Semitism in the United States? And I will explain. Um, last November, Hirschwein, I was in LA for the GA. Uh, beforehand, I spent... Uh, Shabbat and Sunday with my cousin in a suburb of LA. Uh, on Shabbat, we went to certain sh 
that Knesset Zelt and Shul Zelt and Sinov, whatever you want to call it, on Sunday morning when I was going to go to the same Bet Knesset, my cousin called me from the window, don't go there, this Bet Knesset, this synagogue is closed on Sunday. Not only on Sunday, every day, except for Shabbat. It's not because of lack of minyan or minyan, but because the neighbors of this Bet Knesset, of this shul, most, big majority of them Jewish, objected to the building of the Bet Knesset, of the shul, because of noise, because of smoke, because of traffic and so on. And it was agreed with the municipality to open this synagogue only for Shabbat. And my cousin, who is Shaliach there, told me that this situation exists in many, many suburbs all over the United States. It is true. It's a problem, especially on a roofing that you have the problem uh, where we've had objection, and most of the objection comes from the Jewish community, uh, or often comes from the Jewish community. But you know what the difference between a Jew and a non-Jew? The non-Jew says, Jews, I can't stand them. Levine, great guy. Cohen, wonderful partner. The Jew says, I love Jews. Cohen, that bum, I can't stand them. <laughs> so, every community, you know, has these kind of, of the differences. But it's part of it is ignorance. They don't know who we are, and the feeling that Orthodox Jews moving into a neighborhood because you put up an Eru will change the quality of life, will change the ter determine uh, the uh, the nature of, of the neighborhood. When in fact, it's never true. It's never true that the just the presence of certain people changes the neighborhood. It could be their conduct. You can have other things that happen. So there, a lot of it has to do with education to reach out. And ultimately, if you have to go to the courts, you go to the courts, but that should be the last, it's okay. the last resort. Um, that should be the last resort of the... Uh, I think it's on. Uh, um, but that should be the last resort. But you're absolutely right. We have allowed the, divi the divisions within our community. Not going without. So first, you have to reach in before you reach out. First, we have to reach in and build the bridges within our community. And that often takes, why is it that Chabad is the fastest growing movement on campuses? Shalom. That's the way. No, but you give people a warm environment. You give them, you give them a warm environment. You give them a welcome thing. They say that they can maintain contact. Studies not done by Chabad, by others maintain contact with the rabbi or the rebbitzin for many years, much longer than, let's say, a hill director or others. That's what they want. The young people, they want to have the relationship. And many of those older people carry the animosities and the, the fears from the past to today because we don't do enough to break them down. And to con we have to confront them, but show them that they're not true. Okay, I want to thank uh, Malcolm. That's it. That's it. That's it. Thank you, Malcolm. Thank you, Adam, for the interesting interview. And the which Hatzlacharaba on the launching of the new Impact Center. Very exciting. And uh, Professor Zaban's initiative. Uh, it's the, the first, it's one of the first impact cent new Impact Centers. There's right now, how many do we have in total? 11. This one is 11. Yeah, but going back a few years. This is the 11 one. The 11. Exactly. Okay, Kenya. Thank you very much, everyone.
That was uh, Michael Jesselson, and that's the conclusion of the program. Uh, Adam Furziger uh, interviewed Malcolm Honline as part of the uh, as part of the um, uh, program uh, for the founding of the Impact Center we've been talking about. And um, we now have an opportunity, uh, now that we've heard uh, uh, Malcolm Honline and we've heard about the uh, launch of the new Impact Center for the Study of Judaism in Israel and North America, we have an opportunity to speak with some of the people that are um, among the leadership in the world of academia at bar University. And we start with Dr. Tova Genzel, who is director of the Midrashah at bar Shalom, shalom. Welcome to the Nahum Siegel Network. From Israel, actually from Tel Aviv, to the Nachum Siegel Network. Greatly appreciate you joining us. Uh, we know about the, uh, in- and we've discussed uh, so much about Barilan University and the incredible uh, impact that it has in so many areas. Uh, tell us about your Midrashah at Barilan. Well, the Midrashah in Barilan is a very, I think, unique Midrashah. It's the biggest Midrashah in the world. It has about 800 students every year. Uh, most of the students are female, most of the majority, but we also have some male and co-ed classes in the evening. But imagine a big building that has a huge Beit Midrash with, um, at every hour in the day that you would come into the Midrashah, you would see girls sitting in chavrusas, learning with learning partners, and choosing what they decide to learn on an on learn as far as Torah knowledge, meaning it could be Bible study, it could be Jewish philosophy, it could be Talmud, it can be really anything that any woman who's on Barilan campus feels that this is what's right for her. And it's located in the center of Barilan, and we really believe that while you grow in academic, um, in academic setting, it's also the right time to grow in Torah. And uh, it's a very, very broad program. It has programs for secular students. It has programs for women that have been in many midrashot before and want to now do their doctorate, doctorate in Talmud or in the sciences, and continue studying their Torah. So there's really a big range of student body, of lectures, and of types of learning. Has this been like this from the beginning of Bar Ilan? Has there always been an emphasis on Torah study the way that we see it today, and has there always been an opportunity for women, even in the early days of the university, to pursue this type of academic study? So I think the founders of Berlin had imagined a university that definitely incorporated Torah studying with it, but you, and we can all assume that Torah learning for women was quite different, um, you know, many years ago. So this Midrashah was actually built in the beginning of the 80s, and I think it was one of the first Midrashot, one of the first places that enabled women to really learn Torah. I will say honestly and openly that there wasn't a Beit Midrash, meaning if you think of how women's learning Torah was at the end of the 70s when the building was planned, or at the beginning of the 80s, then um, I don't think people really imagined women sitting half a day studying Torah devoting so much time while they were doing their BAMA or doctorates or even afterwards um, to study Sugiyot in the Talmud, for example. So this was really um, something that had to change. We have now a new Beit Midrash. We have a new auditorium. 
the classes were fixed in a way that they're uh, representable also now for 2018. A high technology was put in. So the short answer to your question is yes. Everyone always envisioned Torah. Was it done the way it is today? I guess not. You're one of the first, and we're speaking to Dr. Tova Genzel, you're one of the first of Nishmat's Yoetzot Halacha, Yoetzot Halacha, I should say. Uh, is there some type of formal program like that in Bar Ilan? Are they encouraged to uh, to have a formal program that does, in fact, com- uh, conclude with some type of degree? So the Midrashan Bar Ilan supplements the, degree, the degrees that are given in all the departments in Bar Ilan, in the sciences, in the humanities, in the Jewish studies. So it's really, uh, you know, the, the women have an opportunity to study anything they'd like. We do have intense halachic classes. Uh, the most prominent one is given by Rabbi Aharon Katz, who's actually the uh, acting rabbi of the city of Ramatgan. It is nothing like the Nishmat's program. The Nishmat's program is unique um, and has its own features, but but we have many authors who graduated the Nishmat program and come to continue learning by us just because they want to continue learning Talmud or continue learning halacha and make that part of their daily schedule even for years on. We emphasized early on in this broadcast how in the part of the community that I'm from, for instance, uh, Bar-Ilan seems to be um, uh, the university of choice for those Americans, from again, from the community I come from, uh, who want to pursue a, um, a collegiate experience but under Jewish auspices in Israel. Um, is this is this the Midrashah part of, uh, of Bar-Ilan attractive to those who are not native Israelis? Uh, definitely. First of all, we have a special evening program on Sunday evenings in English catered to these students, and many of them choose to come on Aliyah. Some can choose to just learn in Israel. It's actually called Torah and Challenge. Uh, it was <laughs> named by the American student body. The Midrashah smells from the crockpots. That no, no average Israeli knows what a crockpot is, but the Americans all know, and they put these challenge ones, the vegetarian and the flesic and the every Sunday. And when I tried to move the day just for logistic reasons, they told me, no, but it's supposed to resemble Sunday in America. <laughs> I said, fine, you'll have your Sundays in America. So there's a big crowd every Sunday night. You can follow us on Facebook and see, we usually put up pictures. And then you also see that the lecturers of Sunday night, me as a born in Israel and Israeli, um, usually don't know any of these lecturers. The students bring them. They usually are the rabbim or the women. Uh, who taught them in the yeshivot in America who came on Aliyah or who happened to be here recruiting or whatever it is. Um, and then they come Sunday night. So that's like the special program we have for this student body. It's an excellent opportunity to meet and to see who lives in Givach Moel and be part of that Givach Moel community too. In addition to that, we really try to accommodate these students um, with the Hebrew classes, with the tests. Uh, we make sure everyone is always... Uh, has a place for Shabbos. We, we, we really try to be a home in, in the middle of the campus for all our students, but especially for the students from abroad. Dr. Tova Genzel, director of the Midrashad Bar Ilan, you must meet a tremendous number of students who are really motivated when it comes to uh, Jewish studies. must give you an amazing feeling. Can I tell you a, sm- a small secret? Sure. Um, it's hard for all of us to keep up our Jewish learning Torah studies. So many of the students I meet kind of tell me, listen, I've been there, done that, what now? 
So it's not always the case, but I think that's part of our mission, to make sure that it's something that follows us and is part of our lives also when we go out to the real world and we're not part of the Jewish education systems that we were when we grew up. Understood. Just one of the reasons why it's such an important part of the university. Thank you so much for joining us. It's much appreciated. Shalom, shalom. You're welcome. Good night. <clears throat> Dr. Tova Genzel, Director of the Midrashad Barlan University. We are uh, wrapping up our uh, <coughs> coverage of the presentation that was made earlier today, just a few minutes ago, concluded in Israel at Bar-Ilan University with uh, Malcolm Honline as we speak about the brand new Impact Center for the Study of Judaism in Israel North America. We're hoping that he'll join us later on in this broadcast. Uh, there's a Bar-Ilan alumni on the phone, and that's uh, Yehuda Shilat, who is with us live via telephone. Yehuda, shalom. Welcome to the Nahum Siegel Network. Do we have him here? All right, we will hopefully have him join us in just a couple of minutes or so, or maybe even less here in just a moment at the Nahum Siegel Network. Uh, today's a big day. Everyone out there in our network uh, surroundings uh, knows about the uh, special place Malcolm Honline has here at NSN. And to those who are not familiar, who are tuned in today for the first time, we can tell you that he is featured each and every Friday with us at the Nahum Siegel Network. And it gives us an opportunity each week to explore uh, the uh, events of the week, the news of the week. And today, a day in advance of his um, honorary doctoral uh, being given to him, um, uh, he had an opportunity to sit down with the leadership of Bar-Ilan University and discuss the brand new uh, Impact Center for the Study of Judaism in Israel and North America. And now I believe we have Bar-Ilan alumni uh, Yehuda Shilat with us. Yehuda, are you there? Shalom. Yes, hi. How are you? I'm here. Thank Baruch you so Hashem. All right, so you are you are the one representative in this hour that's being described as a Bar Ilan uh, alumni. With that in mind, if you would share with us the journey, uh, tell us about uh, where you come from and how uh, your stay at Bar Ilan began. Well, I actually came from Highland Park, New Jersey. I made Aliyah about uh, seven, eight years ago, more or less. Huh. Um, part of the whole process, you know, is like everyone else uh, that grew up in a modern Orthodox uh, high school, went to high school, went to yeshiva afterwards, and then uh, it's always, slowly the love of Israel really pulled me, to- gravitated me towards uh, this land and wanting to stay here. So uh, pretty much joining Bar Ilan and taking the, the really the decision to study there was uh, natural for me, coming from the background that I came from. So your uh, your uh, decision to make Aliyah was an independent one, as opposed to one that was uh, together with parents or other family members. Yes, absolutely. My parents are still in, uh, in the United States. Uh, does does that move on your part include army service or uh, some type of commitment uh, to public service in Israel? Yeah, that's right. I actually did do the army in the middle um, after my yeshiva. I was there for about two and a half years in the Netzachihuda Battalion, the religious unit. You're familiar, obviously, from the background you just mentioned. You're familiar with with what we know about dual curricula, about uh, you know the yeshiva system here, and what we're familiar with. How would you describe Bar Ilan uh, when we when we think about just that? When we think about you know Jewish auspices, yet a very important and distinguished you know college education. Uh, how would you describe what it's like in Bar Ilan? Well, it really, uh, it's kind of a very comfortable fit in terms of someone like the, coming from the background that I came from. Um, in terms of uh, really having the great balance of, you know, the Torah and the academic studies on a very, on a, what would, I would consider a high level, more or less. 
actually started uh, college in the back in Queens, between uh, hmm. a small close based off semester. And uh, it was actually really funny how seriously the, the learning was there and also being able to continue that um, in, at the same time learning towards a, a degree at the same time. So it really is a very comfortable fit. It's interesting because one of the themes that I mentioned for our purposes today as we broadcasted the, the uh, Bar Ilan um, uh, ceremony, uh, the lecture that took place was that, uh, you know, I, I would think the majority of people who are from communities like mine uh, who want to go to university in Israel are attracted uh, to Bar Ilan. And you can uh, certainly say and, uh, and, um, and uh, confirm for us that both the, uh, uh, the secular academics and the Jewish academics are, uh, are, are, um, are uh, above par, so to speak, that they are, <laughs> that they are very worthwhile, both departments very Absolutely. worthwhile. Of course, that's what I couldn't agree more, especially, um, you know, I, coming to Israel also, going to, uh, spending a few good years only in yeshiva, um, you really have, you really kind of miss that kind of background, and I think Barlow definitely does support that as well. And in terms of getting a, a real university education, I think it, it has one of the best uh, in the country. It's not in the world, that's for sure. What do you say to those students who, might be considering this move, but are a little worried about the Hebrew language and that type of adjustment. Any advice? So, 100%, I think bar is definitely the place to be. I know they have many very good um, programs that are really just in English. Um, aside from that, I do a degree in, uh, in Hebrew. My Hebrew is fine, but still, writing is still not my... I'm not 100% comfortable. I'm not ready there. But the professors really understand the background that we're coming from. And they let you write your papers in English very often, and uh, they really do cater to all the, all the special uh, kind of requests that you may have, especially someone coming from a, a place that's really not used to the culture and the language. Hmm, interesting. So they really cooperate, to say the least. They want to see you Absolutely. succeed, no matter what it takes, I guess. Yeah, and there's really that really good uh, that bond between uh, student future where they'll really do as much as possible to, uh, to make sure that you uh, have an easy process uh, you know, really being incorporated in the university. Being alone, um, you know, uh, w- without, you know, parents uh, in Israel at the time, um, so what type of uh, uh, of housing situation were you in? Were you living on campus? Did you have uh, a place near to campus? How did it work for you? So, both of them, I got married about uh, two years ago. Mm. Um, so I lived together with my wife. We live in a, in a shoe in the Shomron. Um, so it really is, uh, so it's pretty much where we come back to. My uh, wife is also sitting at Bar-Ilan as well. Um, so it's really convenient. Uh, going together to university uh, really is very comfortable for the, the both of us. <laughs> very cool. Yehuda Shilat, originally from New Jersey, and now uh, living in Israel. And as you heard, a Bar-Ilan Bar alumni, uh, a very proud one, and one who is certainly recommending it for those who are... Uh, uh, wondering if it might Absolutely. be good for them. Yehuda Tadaraba, thanks so much. Best regards, and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks. Yehuda Shilat in Israel. Uh, quite a day for us as we uh, highlight Bar Ilan University through the um, uh, through the program that uh, went on there earlier today. Uh, Malcolm Holmline, who's with us here at the Nachum Siegel Network on a weekly basis, tomorrow will receive an honorary doctorate degree from Bar Ilan. And today, uh, the lecture, the Q&A, the, in many ways, the... Um, directives given by Mr. Honline to the American Jewish community and the world Jewish community through his words. He had some pretty strong statements, to say the least. Um, it uh, was part of the uh, the launching of the brand new Impact Center for the Study of Judaism in Israel and North America. And now we have a, a, a chance 
as you've been listening to uh, speak with the uh, professors, researchers, alumni, uh, department heads for just a few minutes and get a perspective on what's happening at Bar-Ilan and what we here in the U.S. and around the world need to know about Bar-Ilan University. Um, those of you looking for information, the American Friends website is a great place to begin, afbiu.org. That's American Friends of Bar-Ilan University, afbiu.org. And there you'll find information about the history and obviously the current situation and the uh, the goals and the um, uh, all the different uh, traditions of Bar-Ilan University. We uh, strongly recommend everybody get more familiar with it. And I am told that uh, Alan Zeckelman, who is chairman of the board of the American Friends of Bar-Ilan University, is with us live via telephone. Mr. Zeckelman, are you with us? Uh, I am here. Shalom, shalom, and... I guess I'll say Mazal Tov. Why not? After all, Bar Ilan is celebrating a pretty big day. They've added another impact center on the campus, this one for the study of Judaism in Israel and North America. What did you think of the proceedings uh, at Bar Ilan University today? I was pretty much blown away, especially by Malcolm Holmline's uh, speech, but in particular, though, uh, the wonderful words by Adam Verzinger before about the status of uh, uh, the, let's say, dichotomy between uh, diaspora Jewry, aka American Jewry, and, and Israeli Jewry, but maybe it really isn't such a dichotomy. It's more of a uh, something to work on to show more about the similarities and the differences, and, and to focus on on the unity. Of course, I, I guess people do use buzzwords like achdut or achdus all the time. We have to make it real now, especially during this time of sphera when we can kind of focus on that, but um, it was a very, very interesting presentation, and, and this Impact Center couldn't come at a better time, and it's incredibly important uh, just today, or in recent days, you know, there have been articles by uh, Bronfman about uh, what he thinks needs to be done, etc., but pe- people are speaking up, but we shouldn't chastise people, we, 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 need, to, we need to bring people in with a warm hand, and, and I think that that's a very important thing that can be done and must be done because the unity of the Jewish people and the future of the state of Israel and uh, uh, is really dependent upon this. We cannot have fractures in, in our community. Amen to that. Alan Zeckelman's with us, Chairman of the Board of American Friends, Bar Ilan University. You know, one of our themes constantly, and something I've been talking about for decades, is bridging the gap between Israel and the diaspora. It, it is unique and, and remarkably, uh, I don't know how much of it on purpose and how much uh, you know, uh, by accident, so to speak, it has happened. But over these decades, it's incredible the role that Bar Ilan has played in just that, in bridging the gap between uh, Israel and and uh, diaspora jury, specifically the United States. Do you get the feeling as you sit in your position that there is this incredible back and forth, a real corridor of activity between the two? Well, um, I, I, I feel that the gap isn't as big as people think it is. Mm. I do believe that Bar-Ilan has, has done a lot. Uh, you know, the Lookstein Center is one a great example, um, fostering development of, of, of diaspora jury educational efforts has been tremendous. Uh, you know, they've impacted uh, uh, religious schools that have been like, uh, Solomon Schechter type schools at one type of level, uh, modern orthodox schools is another. Um, it, 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 Bar-Ilan campus, if you are to come visit it and you look around at the student body, it's not filled with a whole bunch of 
only kippahs through God-wearing people. It, 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 it's filled with the tr- a true cross-section of, of, of Israel society, and I don't know if that's fully appreciated outside of Israel, even outside of uh, Barilan's campus. And, and, and because it's such an integrated and, and reflective place of, of the bulk of Israel society, it creates an environment where you can come up with ideas that solve problems, and, and that's why it's so wonderful that Impact Center is here, and, and uh, that, that back and forth that goes on will translate itself to something that could be taken beyond the campus and to the rest of the Jewish people. Yeah, I guess unity begins when people are under one roof, whether that's symbolic or literal. And the campus's uh, example, as you just mentioned, it's proudly proclaimed on the website of the American Friends. Bar Ilan is, in fact, a microcosm of the state of Israel, bringing together every type of person who's in Israel and that's a very right. important place to Including Arabs. Right. Including Arabs. Correct. That's a Absolutely. very, very yeah, important... I mean, I mean we, we, we are here with, with uh, Arabs. Why not? I mean, it's the reality of the state of Israel. And, and, uh, and we are here with people who are not respectful, don't happen to yet understand what the Shabbat means from a right. Jewish perspective. But does that mean that it's a problem? No. Many of them, though, come here and for the first time have exposure. Like I was visiting the lady, the Midrashah today, and, and, and spoke with some wonderful young ladies who uh, didn't really know much about their own Judaism, yet they live in the state of Israel. It, it, it's hard to understand for people in America. You know, are all the Jews in Israel observant? No. Are all the, uh, it's actually more likely not the case. Right. Most Jews in Israel are secular, just like most Americans. American Jews are secular. Uh, there are more similarities and differences and more opportunities here in Israel and in America for, for Jews to appreciate each other and appreciate uh, their Jewish identity. There's always been a great history of American support, I mean financial support, for Bar-Ilan University. Is that continuing now in 2018? Of course it is. Um, if we walk around the campus and we see many, many buildings here with American names on them. Um, what we kind of have to transition from now, uh, from the past to now, is that we're not going to be building a lot of new buildings. We have a, a, a plethora of programs to, uh, to fund. And, and uh, we bring the message to people in the United States about what we can do, the things that we're really doing, and, and people react so positively. And uh, we're going to be doing even more. There's a whole new uh, rebranding effort going on in Barilan in Israel that we'll be uh, dovetailing with in the U.S. and bringing it to uh, the American donor base. Um, it's true that our total amount of fundraising is not on a par with some of the other great institutions in the state of Israel, and, and they are wonderful institutions, Technion, Weizmann, etc. But it's only because people don't yet comprehend what the value, the Zionist story is that we have. And when that story is going to be launched out to them very soon, our fundraising, although it's good, it'll become even better. And people will do it because give money because we'll see the value of what we do to unify and educate people here in Israel and abroad. Yeah, and I would also add to that, uh, once they realize the academics and the research that's going on at Bar Ilan, oh. I cited early... It's second to none. I second s- to none. We have, we, we have, we have uh, quantum uh, research, nanotechnology research, brain research. It's, it's, you know, we, we've had just a tremendous investment in science. We spent, uh, it, uh, it's really a place that combines a Jewish approach to 
living in this modern world. We spent about five minutes during the um, early part of this broadcast talking about the nano drops that we are hearing about and how professors... <laughs> yeah, you put in your eyes or something. Right. Turn into, uh, Which is unbelievable. You Profes- need to do laser surgery or something. Professors and doctors from Bar Ilan are talking about a day when there'll be no more eyeglasses. Uh, all because of the research or that they've done. I, yeah. I could use that. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. All of us can. Uh, Alan Zeckelman is with us, chairman of the Board of American Friends, Bar Ilan University. Big day today. Uh, what do you say about uh, Malcolm Holmline with the honorary doctoral? Pretty good choice, huh? You know, many people have chosen him to give chosen chosen to give honors to him, um, and, and he, but 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 it's it's. I think it's very special. I, I would bet that he would say that it's very meaningful to him to be getting it from Barilon because Barilon really embodies a term, the things that that have driven him Good to point. do the things that he's done in this world. Uh, I, 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 we're so proud to be able to give it to him, and uh, the interview today that I heard him give. Blew me away. I had some friends in America listening to your show online, and they're WhatsApping me during it, saying, "I, I, I don't know much. I didn't know much about Malcolm Holmline before, but he's just unbelievable." Uh, and of course, they not know about your show too. So, <laughs> worldly word of spreading about your show will have more listeners, hopefully, in the Detroit area. Thank God. Thank God. We always want to do that. Well, I thank you. Uh, congratulations on today and tomorrow, and of course, uh, in your role as chairman thank of the you. board, American Friends Barilan University it is. Uh, I, I'm sure it is the, it's not the easiest of positions, but people have to step up when it comes time for community service. And one of this, yep. uh, one of the most important things we could do is continue to support institutions like this one. Yep. Thank you, well, Alan Zeckelman. A okay, pleasure. Take care. Pleasure to have you on, Alan Zeckelman, Chairman of the Board, American Friends, Barilan University. You're listening to the Nahum Siegel Network as we continue uh, with a uh, a wonderful array of people who are uh, uh, part of the. Um, Part of the uh, infrastructure of Bari Lawn. In Alan's case, American Friends. We spoke with the uh, uh, director of the Midrashat Bari Lawn, Dr. Tova Ganzel. Um, Yehuda Shilat, representing the students and alumni, a proud alum of Bari Lawn, somebody who's originally from New Jersey. And uh, upcoming, we, um, we have um, uh, a couple of more conversations before we hopefully get to Malcolm Holmline himself. He is scheduled to join us, or by Ari Khan is going to be with us in just a couple of minutes. He is the co-author of the brand new book with um, Senator Joe Lieberman, and we will talk about that in just a few minutes here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Uh, everybody uh, will have an opportunity, if you missed Malcolm Holmline's presentation from earlier today, or tonight, I should say, at Barilan, you'll have an opportunity. We will archive it and make it available to everybody um, for your listening pleasure later on. Miriam L. Wallach is here. Not everyone will consider it pleasure because of I, I think he gave some directives and muster to the Jewish world that was uh, quite appropriate, but very strong at certain points. But well-deserved. And certainly well-deserved, of course. <laughs> and that's his right, frankly. Oh, yeah. That's and, his right. And hopefully he'll join. He is still scheduled to join us, right? Yes. Toward, toward the end of this broadcast. Correct. So he will be our culminating interview. Another few minutes from now, we'll... Dr. Holmline. Oh, not till right. tomorrow, right? Oh, that's true. Right. We have another day before we have to. But uh, but as everyone has pointed out, he's gotten enough of these over the years <laughs> that, that we really legitimately could refer to him in that uh, with that moniker now. Um, so we'll see exactly uh, what he says when we call him that later on today. Uh, the Nahum Single Network and American Friends of Barilan University present this special broadcast. I am told that Rabbi Ari Khan is with us live via telephone. Rabbi Khan is the uh, co-author of the brand-new book uh, about Shavuot, co-authored with Senator Joe Lieberman. Rabbi Khan, are you there? Yes, 
How are you? What a pleasure to welcome you back to the Nachum Siegel Network. You, you've been associated with Bar Ilan University for how long? Since 1991. Wow. In what capacities, if you don't mind reviewing for us? <laughs> From 91 to 94, I only taught. <laughs> and, since 95, and since 95, I've been teaching and also overseeing the overseas students. Uh, some people might be surprised, others will not, by the number of overseas students that are on campus. Uh, it, has it grown considerably over the last few years? Well, I'm, I mainly deal with the program for overseas students, mm-hmm. students, but aside from that, there are hundreds of kids around, of young people around, So, and, and the number grows all the time. One of the uh, alums of uh, Barilan joined us earlier, who's originally from New Jersey, was describing how Frankly, to professors and department heads, you know, when, when there's a foreign student, which somebody from New Jersey would be, are there, they have trouble with language, other things, they're extremely helpful in helping them get through their courses and making it as, as friendly an encounter as possible there, and that obviously is a big help for those considering going there. For sure. And, and, a, and a lot of uh, disciplines, the textbooks are English. Right. So, which the, is a, so the foreign students have an advantage. It's a big help. Uh, the book is called With Liberty and Justice, The 50-Day Journey from Egypt to Sinai. Many of our listeners are familiar with the works of Rabbi Ari Khan, I'm proud to say, and there are many of your books on my shelves, and they're all very enjoyable, scholarly, and uh, and wonderful to read. Some might be surprised that it would be a good shidduch for Rabbi Ari Khan and Senator Joe Lieberman to co-author a book. Could you tell us about this pursuit that's now out, called With Liberty and Justice, The 50-Day Journey from Egypt to Sinai. Yeah, what I will say is that Senator Lieberman is among the, the classiest and the most experienced people involved in the Jewish community, and therefore to do a project with him was an absolute honor for me. And uh, it was something that was his idea. He wanted to do something which was a little more Torah-based uh, than his previous works or experience had been, and he had this idea of uh, trying to do this together, and I think that the end product is really interesting. Um, how would you describe it? Is it is it a I don't know an analysis of history? Is it all you know Torah based, meaning you're analyzing the passages of of Passover and Shavuos? Is it something much more contemporary? How would you would describe it? It's it's fifty short pieces. Beginning of the work is to trying to understand the, the importance of law and seeing how law has always been a part of Judaism. I think that's really an obvious point. And along the way, the, you know, the senator shares a lot of his experiences, his stories. Uh, the man met Martin Luther King. I mean, the, the man met his president and, uh, and chastised at least one president, which came into, when we discussed the Ten Commandments, a particular commandment, you can guess which one. Right. And, and it, it goes into all kinds of parts of Judaism and thought, upon free in terms of Passover, but really it's the march to uh, to Sinai and to, and to law and accepting the law. Right. Um, uh, would somebody who's not familiar with uh, Egypt to Sinai, meaning somebody not of the Jewish faith, find an interest in this book? I, I believe they would. I believe they would. I, look, we, we wrote it for multiple audiences, and... One of them, I'll say the main audience, were people who understand, people who are part of, uh, of our tradition. But we saw it as being the perfect work to give, or book to give, maybe even like as an Afikoman present, to the non-religious relative who only has Passover but doesn't have it. really a good step 
in order to, you know, to continue. Rabbi Ari Khan is with us with Liberty and Justice, the 50-day journey from Egypt to Sinai. Rabbi Khan, of course, since the 90s, head of the uh, overseas program at Bar-Ilan University. Hence, he's part of our broadcast today as we concentrate on this special day for the American friends of Bar-Ilan University. Um, sometimes people joke. Sometimes they're serious that Shavuos is the forgotten holiday. It's not. <laughs> there aren't even 10 holidays in the Jewish calendar, and yet it may not make the top 10 list, frankly, for a lot of people. Um, is, is there a way you think, especially as it continues to be academically based, you know, uh, giving of the Torah, Torah study, etc., is there a way to make Shavuos a, a bit more appealing to those who are on the periphery? Well, you know, for non-religious Israelis, it was one of the things, maybe one of the few holidays they did keep because of the side of it in terms of the Bikurim, the agricultural side to it. So that's something which I think in an industrial society people sort of moved away from. But, you know, it has two sides to it. All Jewish holidays have two sides, what I would call the more historical and then the theological, or also the agricultural. What we have is a holiday where if you take away the agriculture, so then the only thing you're left with is Sinai. And I'm making it sound like Sinai is not significant. Right. It is. important, even in, in, in a modern society, even if we don't have Bikurim to put on our shoulders and march to Jerusalem with, just to think and to be thankful for the bounty which God's given us. I think that's a very important contemporary message. One of the uh, statements about uh, which I saw in, in one of the reviews says that the authors, meaning, of course, Senator Lieberman and yourself, Rabbi Khan, uh, follow the annual journey from Egypt to Sinai, illustrating there could be no liberty without law, no freedom without justice. Many quote-unquote libertarians, or those who lean in that direction, <laughs> May not may not uh, be readily uh, um, uh, um, uh, apt to agree with that about no liberty without law. How can one convince them and others that the only way to have free and and real liberty is with a, is with a system of laws? Well, I, I think all of us are enslaved to different things, and I think the point is when we leave Egypt, and therefore at that moment we were free. The truth is, we weren't free at that point. And, and real freedom became, instead of the person with an impossible number of possibilities, I think that freedom also is somebody who has direction. And I think that that's something which liberates us from, uh, from confusion. So it could be that you're correct that the libertarian will not be convinced at all, but even the libertarian doesn't want there to be. Understood. With Liberty and Justice, the 50-day journey from Egypt to Sinai, uh, co-authors are Senator Joe Lieberman and our guest, Rabbi Ari Khan. Rabbi Khan is the Director of Overseas Program at Bar-Ilan University. Uh, big day for Bar-Ilan today. I thank you so much for joining us, and uh, good luck with the book. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. A pleasure. Rabbi Ari Khan here at the Nahum Siegel Network. We are uh, speaking with uh, a variety of people who are associated with Bar-Ilan University on this very special day. Uh, the Impact Center for the Study of Judaism in Israel and North America has been announced. The formal program has taken place with Malcolm Honline, which we had for you earlier. Um, Bar-Ilan's professor, Aaron Mayer, is with us live via telephone, uh, known as the Indiana Jones of Israel. Um he is uh, on his 20-year excavation of the biblical city of Gat, and he is ready to discuss with us how archaeology deepens our roots in the land of Israel. Professor Mayer, shalom, shalom. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, thank you for having me. 
Uh, when one thinks of archaeology, I would guess in the area of archaeology, there is no place that they would think of more than the land of Israel. No greater history, uh, no deeper roots, so to speak. Um, the, 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 I, I can only imagine how many projects you've been involved with over the years. Could you give us a, a, a short overview, if possible, of some of the places and things that you've had a hand in discovering and bringing to the forefront over the last decades? Well, okay. Um, first of all, um, as you said, I've been working for more than 20 years at the site of Tel Asafi, got, got, you know, got to the Philistines, Goliath's hometown. So I would say that's, that's really my, um, my primary focus for many decades. But for, before that, I worked um, in Jerusalem at various excavations. I worked in, uh, in Beit Sha'an uh, in the northern Israel. I worked in Hatzor, northern Israel. I worked at a site or two in Tel Aviv, uh, in the area of Tel Aviv. So I, I've been around, but I would say that my, um, my main, um, uh, you know, place where I, I would say also, you know, you know, in 40 years from there, we said, where did Mayer work uh, and what's his main contribution? I would say the excavation of uh, Telesafi. Professor Aaron Mayer with us, Department of Biblical Archaeology, Barlon University. Um, it, are they all very, very different uh, to us, you know, people who are not that familiar with archaeological digs and projects? It might seem the same with a lot of very similar elements. To someone like you, are all these projects very, very different? Yes, because each site uh, is different from its geographic placement and, you know, whatever, even the soil that you have there. But more importantly, from an archaeological point of view and a historical point of view, uh, each site represents different uh, historical and cultural features. So if I'm excavating a site which is, uh, for example, during the, the time of the First Temple, the biblical period, it's an Israelite site or a, a Judite site or a Philistine site, it will be very different from what I find there and what I don't find there, and it will tell a very different story of the peoples who live there. So, you know, just like you, know, you could say that someone who's an expert at cars and can tell the difference between a, a 58 Chevy and a, and a 58 Ford and a 62 Chevy and a 75 Chevy, and, and many people can't do that, I can tell the difference between, you know, the different cultures of antiquity and, and make some sense out of it. So I think uh, this knowledge that I have enables us to tell a story, if you want to yarn about the past, and, and as I said in the beginning, um, helps us um, bring some let's say um tangible evidence uh to 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 tell the story of the past to give it color to give it meaning in the city of god have you found any tangible evidence of the existence of goliath well we haven't found the existence of goliath itself and i'm and i and I, I always joke that if i found one large finger digit um, I, I'd immediately report it to the press, and so far we haven't. <laughs> but uh, but we have found a lot of evidence of the Philistines, and we even found an inscription with has names that are very similar to the name of Goliath. It's not Goliath, but it it means that people with you know of the same cultural background as described in the biblical text, in fact, did live at, at Gat. And or for example, we, there's a very famous st story in the Bible where David comes to the city gate of Gat, and Achish, the king of Gat, meets him, 
and David realizes that his life is in danger, and he he, he feigns madness. Uh, it's a very famous story in the Book of Samuel. So um, we found the gate of God. So it doesn't, you know, we can't say, oh, there, there, David. You know, we for sure found David, but we found the background which enables the story to be told and to told in a way which um, gives it life and color. And I think that's the that's the really fascinating aspect of that that archaeology anywhere, but particularly in Israel, gives you is that it it enables to take um, historical and biblical events that are very often very far away and very um, remote, and I would say particular uh, nowadays when, um, uh, like, uh, I would say the younger generation has a 2.4 second uh, attention span. Um, So if you can get something that that you can hold, you can touch, you can excavate, you can you can pull, pull out a shirt from the ground and say, this shirt is from the time of uh, David, this shirt is from the time of Isaiah, this shirt is from the people who uh, who Goliath was uh, one of their neighbors, it suddenly turns these stories not into something theoretical that you read in a book and fall asleep, but you say, oh wow, I read this, I, I can I can connect between my experience and what's written in the, in the, in the text, and in, in, in our case, the biblical text, and it turns it into something that's exciting, um, relevant, pulls you in, and I think that's the um, that's the power that archaeology has. Boy, do I need about an hour or two to interview you at full length. I have so many questions to ask. I'm sorry we're limited to these few minutes. I should, though, before I uh, uh, before we say goodbye, I, I've got to ask you about Bar-Ilan University, uh, you at the Department of Biblical Archaeology at Bar-Ilan. I, I would guess that to do work like yours, you really need the support of a great academic institution. Am I right? Yes, I mean, for, well, first of all, it's the it's the Department of Land of Israel Studies and Archaeology, if you mm-hmm. want to be accurate. Okay. Uh, and yes, um, uh, you can only excavate in Israel um, if you have the the backing of a of an academic institution and you get the licensing from the Israel Antiquities Authority, which is the government uh, body which which um, regulates archaeology in Israel. And uh, more important than that, you need funding. And and uh, uh, if uh, people are interested, you know. We need the funding to continue working in um, in archaeology, and I'll, and, I'll, and another thing is uh, we accept volunteers. Anybody wants to come out and get get dirty, but get some uh, have a lot of fun and uh, learn about the past and and tangibly feel it, come join us. I may take We're you up on that, field. Professor Mayer. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Great to speak to you. Really amazing. Uh, you are listening to the Nahum Siegel Network special coverage of. Uh, our presentation with the American Friends of Bar-Ilan University right here on the Nahum Siegel Network and NahumSiegel.com and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Tomorrow receives the honorary doctorate at Bar-Ilan. Today we enjoyed, and I say that in quotation marks because of uh, uh, the, the intensity of the uh, presentation, uh, the uh, in- incredible... Um, opening lecture, Q&A, interview, whatever you want to call it, as they launched a new impact center for the study of Judaism in Israel and North America. Mr. Honline, welcome back to the Nahum Siegel Network. Thank you. Thank you for carrying it. I, I say enjoy in quotation marks because, boy, did you let us have it. Did you let us have it as a Jewish and and we deserved it, frankly, uh, as a Jewish community. I have some of the notes about some of the things you said, and boy, oh boy, people who avoid getting involved, people who really leave it to others or show a complete disinterest, uh, I believe that they were one of your targets today. Would that be accurate? Yes. (laughs) We're all the targets because all of us 
can do better. And all of us have to start looking at the realities that we face. And we get so sidetracked by narrowing, by scandals, by all sorts of things, rather than focusing on what's really important. And we have critical decisions and critical choices to make. And that's why I was what I was trying to highlight. Even though, you know, I could have spoken much longer about each of the subjects because we get, you know, it's, it, they're very complex and um, things I think about a lot. You know, we um, you mentioned this in 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 part of the presentation, and as we were discussing your early early appearances on our broadcast from years ago. Uh, you were the only one who was um, warning the world, even United States presidents, leaders of the world, about Islamic fundamentalism. Uh, we, of course, know that there was a wake-up call September of 2001, and that's when we started to have these regular conversations on the air. And uh, not that you ever wanted to be justified, of course, but but one would suspect that now as you warn the world and continue to warn the world about Iranian uh, activity, Syrian activity, and so many other parts of the world, South America and many others, uh, you, you would hope that that the world and its leaders would get the same wake up call that they got back, you know, years ago. Obviously, then at a price, but hopefully, what you're telling everyone now worldwide will resonate with them at some point, and they'll wake up to what's happening around us. Uh, absolutely, this discussion was more about internal Jewish affairs, but you know, Iran remains the number one challenge and more issue that we all have to be dealing with. I started meeting with presidents. I met with George Bush one about Iran when, again, people just didn't know why and why, why we were so concerned. And I kept in touch with Iranian dissidents. We kept in touch with, uh, you know, Iranian people here and there um, because the, it, it, there was the clear emergence to me of this danger, this growing danger, nascent danger of a country that was on the road not only to regional uh, dominance, but also to the potential of a nu- nuclear capacity. And, you know, I, I mentioned my visits in Russia in the 90s, but on Islamic fundamentalism, I started in the middle 80s, and I know that people thought I was nuts, and many people, many people after 9-11 wrote me letters, I mean hundreds, saying, we apologize, we didn't get it, we didn't know, we, we, you know, we really thought this was something, you know, off the wall. And Iran, the same thing. President of the United States would talk to me, uh, in some cases, for long periods about it. But the bottom line was the problem, that we weren't getting the action. And we could have preempted a lot of what we see today had action been taken then. Uh, Tamar, you received the honorary doctorate. How meaningful is it uh, for you that uh, Bar-Ilan University is taking this step and and really uh, highlighting your career and uh, creating this impact center to study Judaism in Israel and North America. Well, first of all, I, it's a great honor, and if by any measure, it's my fourth honorary doctorate, but this the first one in Israel, which is very special to me. And Bar-Ilan, to me, represents the maintenance of Jewish values, Torah values, in, in the modern state of Israel. And, you know, it's, it has 17,000 students. It's a huge institution today with, with a very broad impact on Israel and way beyond Israel. So receiving this is... is Really, very meaningful and important to me, and the the, um, the role that the new center will play there, I think, will also be very significant. And I hope to be able to be of assistance to them. I was very honored that uh, Rabbi Dr. Ari Berman was there, the president of YU, and the connection between YU and Barilan was also underscored uh, by that, and and the similarities between the missions of the institutions, uh, even though one is in the U.S. and one is in Israel. 
no question about it. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'd love to ask this in a more positive manner, but may as well ask it directly. You were pretty direct today as well. Is there any justification for members of our community to largely, in a large fashion, support secular universities? Look, I think that, yes, I do think that there is reason to people who have great affection, memories, connections to their alma mater or whatever it might be in, uh, in academic areas and or institutions or those who feel a specific commitment to art and culture music. There is a place for that. But the question is, where do you set your priorities? Does 90% go to general charities and 10% to Jewish charities or even less? Do, we, do they think about the impact, long-term impact, of their gifts and what will really make a difference in terms of the Jewish community where part of that money will go much further and do much more good and impact the education of hundreds of thousands of children if it was given for Jewish education, if we lower tuition, if we were able to provide scholarships and, and make it up uh, to the parents who cannot afford it, and instead send their kids to public schools where they ultimately get very limited uh, Jewish exposure and Jewish education. And uh, I think that, uh, it, and, and that applies also, by the way, to Jewish education in Europe. It's not just in the United States. In Israel, thank God, they, they are able to get free tuition and, or reduced price tuition. So it's not as critical an issue there, the tuition per se, but the educational institutions need support. And we need to continue to attract people to come, the best minds, keep them in Israel and to bring others back and to bring new ones. And you can only do that if you have the infrastructure to accommodate them. And I think the, uh, for our, our institutions in America, you know, we are losing every day hundreds and hundreds of young people, young Jews, who are just disaffecting away. And this, you know, they're not against us. They're not against the Jewish people and Jewish religion, Jewish their parents, it, it may not even be an act of rebellion. It's an act of indifference, of apathy, of, of not having the, knowing the significance. It's ignorance. It's lack of education. Uh, two more quick things I'll let you go. On this topic, I, I, I was a little surprised, maybe that's not the right word, uh, when you said the Jewish Day School movement is, is you know doing well. Now, now I understand why you said it, because the only way it's lacking is, is those who can't get into it, uh, because of course, but right. you're, you're laying that at the feet of the lay leaders as opposed to uh, at the schools themselves. I was also a Talmud Torah teacher at one time, and I know that that movement, as you indicate, is you know quickly dissipating. Uh, but but you know people, and I could tell you, you know, in a different forum, not here publicly, you know people whose uh, whose grandchildren are being rela- raised as Orthodox Jews, and those same grandchildren are going to public school. And the reason is cost. So, I mean, we agree. I think you're right, right. You're right not to lay the blame. I met many in the last few weeks, and I was really taken aback. In some communities, numbers are much greater than in others, and it's, it, it's sometimes surprising, even in affluent communities, that it, it happens. But uh, I understand the cause, but I think, you know, parents have to also set priorities. You know, what do they do for vacation? What kind of car do they drive? What other things? How do they allocate their funds? And, you know, we can't we also have to consider, are we paying rebbies and faculty a fair and living wage? I mean, why should they sacrifice to educate our children when they should live in, in poverty level because, you know, schools can't afford to pay them what they should? And we should look at the institutions themselves to make sure 
that there's the right accountability, that the, you know, the facilities truly are communally controlled and, uh, and administered. So there, there are a lot of responsibilities that I think could help uh, assure the, the, the status of the schools, the integrity of our institutions, and enable us to do a better job. And we have to make it a higher priority for those in the community who can afford it. We know that, that there is a great deal of wealth that is not being shared. And finally, I found your idea about singles converging for an event worldwide on the State of Israel fascinating. Just think of what it would mean if, if tens of thousands from America and from Europe and from Israel would come together. They're, they want to find Jewish mates. They want to have the interaction. And you could build Jewish families for people who, who otherwise would have no opportunity to meet a Jewish mate. You take the thousands at places like Hungary or Belgium, Holland, other countries in Europe, France, England, coming together and meeting in Israel in various locations and having events. You know, there could be study events, there could be sports events, there could be all kinds of things that will attract them and give them an opportunity to mingle and to meet each other and... You know, out of it could come thousands and thousands of Jewish families. What could be a higher calling or a higher, or something more exciting than that? You know why you're an effective Jewish leader? Because you get the big picture. Most people do not. Thank you. Uh, Malcolm Honline, mazel tov to you. Tomorrow, honorary doctorate at bar Ilan University. Aside from calling you doctor, any other changes? <laughs> no, just a little more tired having flown for my grandsons by Mitzvah in Baltimore, taking a train to get on an airplane to come here and go right to the speech and that event. So Amazing. Enjoy. Now going to a wedding. Enjoy that and enjoy tomorrow. And thank you. We'll speak with mm-hmm. you at the end of the week. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Malcolm Holmline, we wish him a mazel tov. Honorary doctor at Bar Ilan University tomorrow. Today, this very interesting encounter at Bar Ilan, um, at Bar Ilan University in Israel. And of course, this presentation. From us here at the Nahum Siegel Network and American Friends of Bar Ilan University, Miriam L. Wallach. I guess it's time to almost wrap things up here on this Monday. <laughs> Usually after Malcolm, you say it's time to say good job. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think the uh, the title of doctor is required based on his reaction. I don't think it's required. No, it almost sounded like he was unbelievably uncomfortable with the potential of being called doctor, even though, as he mentioned, this is not his first, nor do I imagine it'll be his last. 100%. Uh, you mentioned earlier in this broadcast what it was like for us when we walked onto the Barilan campus for the first time after hearing about it for God knows how many years, right? That was quite an experience just being there oh, yeah. and seeing what it's like and knowing that it's uh, catering to thousands, the figure 17,000 is being used, of students and, uh, and faculty. And uh, now I think today we've learned even more about, about Barilan. Sorry about that. <laughs> this is what happens when you're in the same broadcast chair for eight hours in a row. This is what right. Happens. It's called a leg cramp. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we've learned a lot about Barilan today, and we've also um, had an opportunity to... Uh, I would never have known that these impact centers, at, like the one introduced today, actually exist already in so many different areas. Right. So much research being done, so much academia, so many different uh, uh, angles that that's coming from, and all under this incredible Jewish auspices, Torah auspices, etc. You know, as a, as a child of academics, 
I always thought it was it was astounding that people were paid to think and to speak. Right. And yet now, as an adult, I appreciate the fact that there are people who are paid to think and to speak because we need those people. That's what that's what their role is in our society to research, to give ideas, to do the to to do the nitty gritty so that we can all make informed decisions so that we can be better citizens so that we can be better Jews. And that's part of what this is about. 100%. I want to thank the American Friends of Barlon University. They are obviously big thinkers and they obviously get the big picture and they understood the importance of taking what quote unquote could be called a local event or a small campus event uh, or large campus event in this case and uh, and keeping it on campus. Uh, however, mm-hmm. they saw the big picture and saw the uh, uh, the benefits of bringing this to the world through us at here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Obviously, this is going to be archived. People can hear this forever, uh, and I'm sure the video will be available as well for people to uh, to see. And we'll be referencing this for people to check out because this was an important day and uh, one that was very interesting. And like I said, uh, I thought Malcolm Holmline took the opportunity to really let the Jewish world have it where they needed to hear it. Uh, in the areas that they needed to hear it, whether it's Jewish education, getting involved in causes, helping Jews around the world, making better use of our time and Mm -hmm. our resources, uh, was really a... uh, Well-deserved. As some might say, a good Musser schmooze. Yeah, um, (laughs) we've earned it. Yeah, that's for (laughs) sure. Uh, Our thanks again to American Friends of Barilon University. Thank you to Miriam Wallach. Thank you to Yoni Pollock, working very hard during this... uh, What is it already? Three hours that we were doing this? Something like that. My thanks, by the way, to Lonnie Ostrow and to Ilana Oberlander. Thank you both. Both from uh, Barilan University. And, of course, our profound thanks to Robert Katz. Thank you very much, Robert Katz. On this end, uh, we'd be remiss not to thank the person who monitors all of this and makes sure we're always on and always uh, being presented uh, in as best a way as possible. And that's the one and only Avrami Finkelstein. Thank you, Avram, for... uh, Again, monitoring another special broadcast here at the Nahum Siegel Network. I thank you all for tuning in, and a big thank you to... Whoa, there we go. That was very dramatic. A big thank you to the American <laughs> Friends of Barilan University. This has been a special presentation of AFBIU, and you can check out their website, afbiu.org, and of the Nahum Siegel Network. That was the special broadcast done by us at the Nahum Siegel Network and the American Friends for Bar-Ilan University in advance of Malcolm Honline receiving his honorary doctorate from Bar-Ilan, a broadcast that uh, featured an assortment of star professors and researchers from Bar-Ilan and a conversation that Adam Fersiger had with Mr. Honline at the launch of the new Impact Center for the Study of Judaism in Israel and North America. Thanks for listening to JM Rewind. More next week, same time right here at the Nahum Siegel Network.